Hallelujah. You are my living hope. But can you just say it? Hallelujah. I mean, come on. If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. We are, uh, today is a, a, a unique day in the history of America, right? We've termed it Patriots Day. That's the official designation of the day on the calendar. Uh, 22 years ago, a tragic event happened in our country, and most of us pledged on that day and in the days after. We will never forget, okay? And, and that's a good thing that we remember what happened on that day. But one thing that I think we need to never forget is that after the, the, the bombing of the World Trade Centers and the attack on the Pentagon and, and all the things that happened on that day, there seemed to be a renewed spiritual awakening to some degree in our country. It was God, it was country, it was flag, it was all of those things that was so very important. They said uh, in, in, the, in the aftermath of that, uh, flat, uh, the sales of flags skyrocketed. In fact, they ran out of flags to sell to the American people. What a day that was, okay? And as we look back now, 22 years later, uh, 21 years later, sorry, 21 years later, we, I personally wonder where our country is. There's not that unity that we had back, and nobody wants to repeat that, right? Nobody wants to go through that again. Um, But we sure could use a shot of unity in our arm as a nation, uh, where we where we we return to the things that united us at one time. Okay, so as we think about what happened on that day, and we just got done singing a song that is very fitting for that. How great the chasm that lay between us! How high the mountain I could not. You know, can I tell you this? We don't have a divided country because of who the political candidates are or who the political leaders are. We have a divided country because we no longer have our focus set on the one true God who, who loves us and gave his son for us and, and made it possible for us to be redeemed. Uh, the country on which our, our, our the, the God on which our country was founded, our eyes as a nation are not fixed on him at this point. And, and I, I mean, we all know the reasons for that because of the, uh, it's easy to want what I want. And that's really why we are where we are because so many individuals want what I want, not what's right, but what I want. And, and what I want for so many people has, is taking us away from the ways of the Lord. Okay? And that's not surprising because the, the scriptures clearly teach us that that's what's going to happen as we get closer and closer to the return of, of Christ, to the rapture of the church, um, the seven-year tribulation period, and then obviously the return of the Lord uh, to rule and reign on this earth. So it's not surprising, but, but just as we say, I will never forget or we will never forget, may we really remember what we're not forgetting and what we're not forgetting is uh, the, the, the nation that had its heart and mind and, and its eyes fixed on our God at one point in time. You and I as believers, we sing about the living hope. We, and we need to live uh, that living hope. We need, to, we need to speak about that hope. The song we just sang, I don't know, I kind of got goosebumps while we were singing it. Um, uh, you are my living hope. You know, on that, on that day and the weeks following, there was a hope that as they sifted through the rubble, they would find more and more survivors. Every time there was a little, uh, oh, we found, we, we, we heard some noise or we, we saw this and there was hope. People were hoping that they would find this big chasm of space where there were, were survivors that could be cut, pulled out of the rubble. And, and that's a wish. That was a wish. We all wanted that to happen, right? But in, when we talk about this hope of ours in Scripture, oh, it's not a wish. It's a certainty. Jesus is our living hope. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. And we're not talking about the physical death of the body here. We're talking about spiritual, everlasting life that has lost, that the, the, the sentence of death, spiritually being separated from God forever, has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. No wonder the songwriter then says, Hallelujah! 
Hallelujah. What a great God we serve. What a blessing it is to be worshiping him today. And that's not even the sermon, okay? All right, uh, we're going to get into the sermon now. I want to ask you to take your copy of the scriptures, if you would, and turn with me to Psalm 128. The summer in the Psalms continues this morning. Okay, we're going to look at another song of ascent. We mentioned the songs of ascent last week. Remember, these were psalms that were sung as worshipers journeyed up to Jerusalem for worship. Now, you know how on Sunday nights we allow you, the worshiper, to select favorite songs. So don't be surprised tonight when we're all gathered together and we say, who has a favorite that you would like to sing? And when we say that, we're not asking you to sing a solo all by yourself, okay? We're asking you to suggest a song that you love to sing, that reminds you of the Savior, that reminds you of our great God, that we can sing together and worship together our great God. So be thinking about that and be ready to share some tonight, uh, okay? And, and if we have a lot of people that are ready to share a favorite song, we'll take some extra time to sing extra songs tonight, okay? So be ready to share your favorite song of worship tonight. And it doesn't necessarily have to be an old song. There's a lot of good stuff that is out there today that makes our hearts, points our hearts to the, to the one true God, to our great God. And, and we can sing those songs, Okay, so, so be willing to do that tonight as a worshiper. Choose your favorite song. You say, Pastor, what's that got to do with this morning? Well, Psalm 128 was a favorite worship song of many, Jew, uh, many Jews in that time period. So uh, even as we think about you and I worshiping the Lord, um, the psalmist was suggesting here, here's a favorite song to sing as we worship our great God. It's a short psalm, okay? doesn't have a lot of verses. In fact, there's only six verses in the psalm, but it speaks of various important themes centering around the home, the heart, and our heritage even. So would you stand together as we read Psalm 128? It's on the screen, so let's read it together in unison this morning. Psalm 128. Okay. All right, can you pull it up, just the on-screen Bible then? And this is also, there we go, I was going to say, this is also why we bring our Bibles to church, all right? So here we are, Psalm 128. Um, Let's read it together. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion. And may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together in his word this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you so much for the privilege that we have of knowing you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we don't just know about you, but we know you. We are personally related to you through the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. Gives us the right and the opportunity and the meaning of worshiping you. And so this morning, as we continue our worship, we've had a great time in song this morning, reflecting on your attributes and who you are. We're going to continue worshiping you this morning. And as we look at the word of God, we look at this Psalm 128. So we ask that you would encourage our hearts, that you would challenge us, that you would instruct us from your word this morning as we continue our worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
So as we look at this psalm this morning, again, there's a couple of themes that come out in this psalm. Uh, And we find those themes in the very opening frame of the psalm, the idea of blessings from the Lord, okay? Fearing the Lord, found twice in this short psalm. So uh, let's focus together our thoughts now on this passage of Scripture as we look at uh, what you and I should do, what, some things that are involved in worship, maybe things that you might not normally think about that are involved in worshiping our great God. First of all, we see here in verse 1 the responsibility of the father. Now, we have to remember that the Jewish household, uh, the father was the central figure or he was the head of that household. And that was the way God designed it. Uh, It doesn't have anything to do with being chauvinistic or anything like that. It's the way God designed the home to be. Um, And you might say, well, why did God design it that way? Well, because God understood the need for leadership leadership, the need for headship, the need for authority to be present in the home. And, and this doesn't have anything to do with one person being more important than another person in the home, okay? It's very picture, the root of this whole idea of headship and leadership is found in the Godhead itself, okay? Jesus is no less important, no, he is not insignificant, not, not less significant than the Father. Uh, and even though in Baptist churches, sometimes we make the Holy Spirit a little little less significant because we were a little concerned about what people might think about us. The Holy Spirit, here's revelation for you, is no less significant than Jesus Christ or the Father. The Holy Spirit is just as important and gets just as much attention in the Godhead as the rest. When we think, when we define the triune Godhead, we say three co-equal, co-eternal members that make up one single Godhead. Okay, so we think it has nothing to do with being less significant, less important. It simply has to do with order. There is order in the Godhead. God is not a God of confusion. He doesn't want confusion in the Godhead. He doesn't want confusion in the home. He doesn't want confusion in the church. He wants us to understand that there is an order that he has established. And in the Jewish community, the father was the head of the household. And in this song, that philosophy is is given, it's understood, and and we understand that the father is important in the home. Uh, And you know what? That's not news to any of us, right? It seems like it might be news in our society because sometimes the news will report that, you know, there's, there's more, so much problem. There's so many problems in our country today. Why is that? And they will agree, they will submit to you that the reason is because there's broken homes all over our country. There's homes where the father doesn't have, take the responsibility that he needs to take. Okay? And, and as a result, as, as broken homes and single parent homes and, and single mom homes increase in our country, the, the struggles in our country increase as well. Why? Because we're not doing things the way God designed them to be done, right? Okay, uh, and, and I speak as one who grew up in a single home. Even when single homes were not uh, as uh, as um, prominent as they are today, uh, you know, I grew up in a single home. My mom was uh, from 1969 all the way up till today. She was a single mom. Okay, and how did we how did we turn out the way we turned out? Not that we're all perfect because none of us are but we turned out the way we are because the church played a significant role in helping raise us with the desire to serve and honor and and remain faithful to our one true God, okay? We put, my mom put God first. I mean, there was no question in our house on Sunday morning where you would be. Unless you were sick and so sick that you had to be in bed, you were in church, Okay? There was no, no, no doubt about it. You couldn't say, Mom, I, I want to go play baseball today. She'd say, too bad. In fact, even on Wednesday nights, Little League game on Wednesday night, I guess you won't make that one, son. You're going to be, home, you're going to be in church because we have church on Wednesday night. Okay? That was the priority, the relationship with God, the church family. It, it didn't matter if it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, vacation Bible school. And why in the world did we always have to have Little League All-Star Game in the middle of vacation Bible school? I could never figure it out. I never got to play any All-Star Game because it was vacation Bible school. Come on! Can't we get our calendar straight? 
Back then, I never knew how hard it was to get a calendar straight. <laughs> okay? Even, for example, our family fun fall festival. We, check, we set this date back in May. Maybe even late April, we started talking about dates. Okay? And we said, okay, September 17th. We, we had it in print. We handed it out at the Memorial Day parade that we were part of. And, and you know what? There were no other events scheduled on that day in the area. Okay, we checked the Tully calendar, we checked Homer calendar, we checked every, all the calendars. There was nothing set on that day. And now we're not the only one anymore on that day. But so what? Okay, I'm just saying that because, man, it's hard to get your calendar situated. But you know what should be number one priority when you set your calendar? Your opportunity to worship God together as a body of believers. The opportunity that you take and set as a priority should say, hey, okay, um, I'm going to worship God together with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Talked about this with neighbors. And, and you know what? We've kind of given that up as a, as a church. 20 years ago, football games, little league games, they weren't scheduled on Sunday mornings. Now you know when they happen? Sunday mornings. I'm not trying to Stick my nose in where it doesn't belong. I'm just trying to remember, remind you that if we don't set this time as a priority, it will fall away. And we need to make sure that we are prioritizing being with your church family on a Sunday morning. And I know there's lots of other opportunities to do other spiritual things on a Sunday morning. But this is the time we have as family time. We gather together as a body of believers and we don't sacrifice this time for other things. Now, I'm not saying you can't go on vacation. You can't go away and have time with your family. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that this time should be a priority in your life because if it's not, other things are going to push it away. And you're going to say, ah, you know what? I can miss it. It's not that big a deal. It needs to be. And I'm sorry, that wasn't in my notes. That's all of the Holy Spirit, okay? (laughs) And I'm going to put it on him, all right? So you can read my notes. It's not in there. But you know what? As a body of believers that call ourselves Calvary Baptist Church of Preble, this time, 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings, I'm going to use the word sacred. It should be a sacred time, not just because of what we do, but in our calendar, it should take precedence over other things. Why, pastor? Why would you do that? Why was it so important for the Jewish people to gather together to worship corporately in the place they called the temple or the synagogue? Uh, It was because they wanted to have the relationship with God as a number one relationship in their lives. And can I tell you this? When God's relationship is number one in your lives, you know what's going to happen? We're going to see here in the Psalm, Psalm 1, the very opening phrase of verse 1 of Psalm 128 is what? Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. We see here a comprehensive blessing from the hand of God, an opportunity that God says, I want to pour out my blessing upon you. Now, what do you think about a promise of God's blessing upon you? I think most people want it. As I talk with people, people will say to me, man, I don't understand why God's not blessing my life. I just don't get it. Why isn't God doing more in my life? You know what my response almost every time is? When's the last time you did a self-examination of your priorities? When's the last time you checked out what you, where you place God on your priority list? I've told you before, I had a guy come into my office who was living with his girlfriend. He said, Pastor, I don't understand. Why isn't God blessing my life? I said, well, look at your life. You're living in sin. I'm what? I got the reputation of being bold because I didn't. I didn't say, okay, you know, let's see if we can figure out a way to make this work. He said, well, what if she lives at one end of the house and I live in the other end? I said, it doesn't matter. Your neighbors don't know that she lives at one end of the house and you live in the other end of the house. Well, what if my dad lives with us? Then I said, your dad should tell you no. Okay? You know, when, when, when uh, uh, your, your neighbors most of the time know you well enough to know whether you're married or not. They also know when somebody comes into your house that's not, part, that's not your wife. Or your husband, okay? And they, and they spend the night there like, hmm, I wonder what's going on there. They don't really wonder. They, are, they jump to the conclusion. They assume what's going on. 
We need to live in such a way that says, hey, God is my life. I want to be obedient to the one true God. And when we are obedient to him, we can expect this comprehensive blessing that the psalmist is talking about. Think about it for a minute. If I offered you something that you really want, if I make an offer to bless you with a particular gift, and that gift is something that you need, your attitude would be, yes, yes, I'll take that gift, please. I, 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 I really would like to have that gift. This week, I started a project. I met a couple guys in Lowe's on, Sunday, on, on Monday morning. Sunday morning, I'm here. On Monday morning, I met a couple guys in Lowe's uh, from our church, and, and, and Doug asked me, he says, so what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm working on a project for somebody. And uh, so I had the wood all lined up, and I was, it, was, it was cut, and I needed to run them through the joiner. And I put new knives on the joiner so it would make a nice even cut and there wouldn't be any lines or anything in the wood after I ran it through the joiner. Only to find out that every piece of wood I ran through the joiner ended up being scalped at the end of it. Like, what is going on? So the joiner I have is, is actually Dave's. I'm borrowing it. I have it's kind of like a permanent loan. I think I've had it for six or seven months now. Um, so I, I went over and I said, hey, Dave, I said, the joiner's doing weird things. Uh, he came over and looked at it. We took the knives off, put them back on. Uh, he says, you got a piece of scrap wood, run it through, and the same thing. Scalp at the end of the wood. So um, this person that I'm making this thing for uh, sends me a message and says, uh, I found more of what I need to store in this unit that you're making. Um, and I said, well, that's good. I've, I've started working on it, but I ended up with a problem with the joiner. It's not working right. We'll still get the project done. Um, we'll just have to do it a little differently. And the individual says to me, she says, well, can I, can I gift you a joiner? And I'm like, well, they're not cheap. How much are they? And I told the price. I can do that. I said, really? It's, it's the, you know, I'm not expecting that. We, we can get the project done uh, without it. What one do you want? Which one do you want? Send me, send me the information I need so I can buy it for you. So I sent them a link. A couple minutes later, joiner's been ordered. It'll be at your house on Tuesday. Wow. Not only will the joiner help me get that project done, but you know, who knows what kind of gifts you're going to get as a result of having a new joiner. Okay? All right? So, yeah, that was a blessing to me. And you know what? When this individual said, I'm going to gift you this joiner, I was humbled by that. I was like, wow. Why, why would you want to do that? Why do, you don't really need to do that. We can get along without it. But they, it, was, it was on their heart to be a blessing. And so the joiner's in the garage. Haven't set it up yet because, you know, there's this event coming up on Saturday that seems to be consuming a lot of time, all right? But anyway, I'm looking forward to opening up the box and setting it up and getting it in use and, and finishing that project. But what a blessing it was to get that. Not something I was seeking after, not something I was looking for. Uh, I just was explaining why it, might not be as quickly completed as I thought maybe it would. And, I, and at the end of the day, I'm like, oh man, that's, just, that's amazing. What a blessing that is to me. Blessed. God wants to bless you. Can you imagine that? That the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, the one who provided everlasting life for mankind to be rightly related to him through his son's death on the cross, that's the God we're talking about, the one true God. There is no other God. That God wants to bless you. Hmm. That's incredible when we stop and think about it. Blessed by the one true God. What does that word blessed mean anyway? Well, it literally means, if we were to say, uh, if we were to write out the definition of blessed, it means, oh, the happiness. Oh, the happiness. It's an exclamation of strong emotion, as if resulting from reflecting on the subject. 
The use of the plural may denote the fullness and variety of the blessing. Isn't it nice to know that God wants his children to be blessed, to be happy? I'm not preaching an idea of life is never going to have problems. You're never going to have a bad day. That's not what it means to be blessed by God. But this opportunity for blessing comes from the hand of God, is promised to his children. He wants what is best for you. As a parent, you want what is best for your children, right? Always. God the Father is the greatest parent. He's the greatest father. That's why we call him Father. And he wants what is best for you. How does that come about? Well, the psalmist says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. We have here in our text a consecrated fear. The one who fears the Lord. Now, this topic of fearing the Lord is one that people have often wondered about and struggled to understand. Just what does it mean to fear the Lord? Some people think that fearing the Lord means that if I do something wrong, God is up there in heaven waiting to zap me with a lightning bolt for not doing what is right. You say, Pastor, that's silly. No, it's not. If you talk to people about the fear of the Lord, they, they're, in, they're in fear. That's not what the fear of the Lord means. Okay? Now, let me, I'll set the record straight a little bit here. Because if you're an unbeliever, that's the kind of fear you better have of God. Okay, but if you're a child of God, that's not the kind of fear that we as God's children should have. This idea of fearing the Lord, it's not being afraid of that person. It's not being afraid of what they might do to you. Let me share something with gotquestions.org. Again, you know this is one of my favorite websites, uh, and they do a very good job of explaining what the fear of the Lord is in relationship to the unbeliever as well as the believer. They write this, For the unbeliever, the fear of God is the fear of the judgment of God and eternal death which is eternal separation from God. Let's stop right there for a moment. If you're here, or if you're listening, or if you as a, as a believer have the opportunity to share with somebody who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, they need to be very afraid of where they will spend eternity. Because it's not a nice place. It's not a pleasant place. Now, that's not a tactic that you use to communicate the gospel, but that's just a fact that you need to share with them. You need to communicate that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to spend eternity separated from God in a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. It's called hell, and it's hot, and it's not nice. And there's no place, there's no way to get out of it. That's just the truth. That's just the fact. Eternal death. I remember sharing with somebody one time, um, You know, God has offered to mankind eternal life. And those of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior, we have eternal life. But for those of us, not us, but for those who reject God and his gift of everlasting life, they will will have everlasting death. And that was like a new concept to them. They're like, everlasting death? Yes. Dying forever and ever and ever. You're not going to go to hell and be burned up and never suffer again. You're going to get a new body that will be able to endure the the torment of hellfire for eternity. That's what eternal death is. Okay, So for the unbeliever, yes, there is something to fear if you don't know God as as your father and you don't know Jesus Christ who rightly relates us to the Father. For the believer, God questions goes on to say, the fear of God is something much different. The believer's fear is reverence of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29, it's a good description of this, says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Wow. Did you ever tie the fear of the Lord with worshiping God? The psalmist does, the writer of Hebrews does. It goes on to say, this reverence and awe is exactly what the fear of God means for Christians. The fear of God is the basis for our walking in his ways, serving him, and yes, loving him. Some redefine the fear of God for believers to respecting him. That's kind of 
if you will, dumbing it down a little bit. Okay? It goes on, while respect is definitely included in the concept of fearing God, there is more to it than that. A biblical fear of God for the believer includes understanding how much God hates sin and fearing his judgment on sin, even in the life of a believer. Yes, you you realize that God will judge your sin. He's not going to condemn you for your sins, but he will judge you for walking out of fellowship with him if you don't confess it and get things right with him. Believers are not to be scared of God. We have no reason to be scared of him. We have his promise that nothing, don't you love this, nothing can separate us from his love, Romans 8, 38 and 39. We have his promise that he will never leave us or forsake us, Hebrews 13, 5. God's never going to let us say, hey, you got this one on your own. And we should never say, God, it's okay, I don't need you on this one. I got to figure it out, I got a source, no, not a problem. God is never going to leave us on our own. Fearing God means having such a reverence for him that it has a great impact on the way we live our lives. The fear of God is respecting him, obeying him, submitting to his discipline, and worshiping him in awe. I stand, I stand, and all of you. What a great God we have. You see, as a child of God, our fear is not a response based in anxiety or of, oh man, what's going to happen now? Instead, fear is a response to who God is. Here's another quote from the Nelson Study Bible. It says, the fear of God is an attitude of respect, a response of reverence and wonder. It is the only, get this, It is the only appropriate response to our creator and redeemer for the child of God. You and I should desire to fear our great God. So we have this idea of consecrated fear. The psalmist goes on to say that this fear of of the Lord is for those who walk in his ways. What we're talking about here is a committed walk. Committed. The man who fears the Lord will be a man who walks in the ways of the Lord. He does not walk in his own ways or in the ways of the world. He walks in the ways of the Lord. And the ways of the Lord, that would be the teachings, the expectations of what God wants from his children. You know, as parents, we have expectations that we have for our children. We have a way that we want our children to walk and to do life, and when our children don't do life the way we want them to do life, they understand that we're not happy with the way they're doing life at the moment. That's, that's just the truth, okay? We've raised our children in such a way that this is the way God wants you to live, this is the way we want you to live, this is the way we expect you should do life, and when they don't do life that way, it hurts our hearts, breaks our hearts, makes us sad, but it shouldn't, inf- it shouldn't impact the way we do life. We should remain committed to that same kind of life that God has called us to. And we're not doing life a particular way because it makes us feel good. We're doing life the way we believe God would have us do life based on the pages of scripture. That's why we're living life the way we live life. A knowledge of God's word is essential to walk in his ways. You know this psalm as well as I do probably, Psalm 1. I'm going to read three verses for you from Psalm 1. The first three verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But, this is the way they shouldn't do life. This is the way you should do life. But, His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf also does not wither. It's clear to see from this Psalm, Psalm 1, that the key to walking in the way of the Lord is by living by the book, living by the word of God. It's the, it's the key for the child of God to walk in the ways of the Lord. We must be committed, and in fact, we must understand that the truth of God's word directs the way we live, the way we do life. 
We are not dependent on other revelation, personal revelation. We don't need that. We have revelation from God in his word. Every time we pick it up and read it, there is revelation for the child of God. Right here in this book. I don't need anyone else is revelation. That's why when I stand up here and preach, I try not to tell you what I think or what my opinion is. And when I do tell you what my opinion is, I hope to make sure that you know that it's my opinion. I want you to know that when you come to church on Sunday morning and you open God's word, we're going to stick to the text. We're going to unveil the text. We're going we're to dissect it, if you will. We're going to tear it apart so we can understand what does it mean for me this morning, this passage of Scripture. If I want to walk in the ways of the Lord, I must be dependent on the Word of God. Peter puts it this way in his second epistle, second epistle, second Peter chapter one, verse one, verse three, he says, his divine power, that's the power of God, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Can I ask you a question? Where do we get the knowledge of who Jesus is? Because that's what this verse is saying. It's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Where do we get all the knowledge we're ever going to get about Jesus and about God? Where do we get it from? Where is it? The word of God. Can I tell you this? You're not going to get revelation from any other source than the word of God. And if you get it, you better make sure that it doesn't contradict this. Okay? I've had people say to me, Pastor, God told me this. I said, oh, really? Where did he tell you that? Ah, I saw it in a dream. Okay, well, let's, let's run it past the pages of Scripture. Okay, that's the test. Does it line up with what Scripture says? Is it clearly taught in Scripture? And if it is, you didn't need the extra revelation, right? It's already there for us. We got it in God's Word. God's Word is our only needed revelation that we have to have. We live by the Word of God. We find all the knowledge we need to find about God in His Word. And if He didn't give it to us in His Word, we don't need it. You just don't need it. God has given us all the information we need about him in the pages of Scripture. That's why it's the only book that has been preserved down through the ages for us to live by. Let's move on. All that in verse 1. Can you believe it? Let's move on. My wife said, this looks like a short sermon. Then she said, I'll believe it when I hear it. Verses 2 through 4, we see the reality of walking with the Lord. You and I, you know, when we walk with the Lord, it's evident. Other people will see it in our lives. David tells us pretty plainly here the benefits or the blessings that come to the child of God when they fear the Lord. First of all, he says here in verse 2 of Psalm 128, when you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. He goes on to talk about your wife. She'll be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house and even your children like olive plants all around your table. You see here, David is reminding us that when we walk with the Lord, when we're walking in the ways of the Lord, it will be evident. You will see it in your life. Others will see it in your life as well. The first idea is that of contentment. This idea of contentment is something that we're all looking for, right? We all want to be content. Can I share a little bit? Um, My wife is doing a workshop at the ladies' seminar, Renew, coming up here just in a couple of weeks. Her her workshop is on contentment. Judy King wrote to her a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, the the registrations are coming in, and what is it, like 90% of the people are signing up for your workshop, Does that tell you something? People are longing for contentment in this world. It must be lacking in life if people are wanting it. Desperate to find out what it is that makes us content. And sometimes this idea of contentment might be elusive. How how can I be content? 
David gives us some insight in the psalm. Okay? First of all, he says, when you eat the labor of your hands, what is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about when you go to work every day, you work hard, you provide for your family, you are not afraid of the hard work. He's going to work hard. The one who's walking in the ways of the Lord is going to work hard. And when he works hard, the Lord will bless his hardworking efforts. You say, Pastor, is that really biblical? Well, from day one, okay, let's make it day six, okay, because that's when man was created. And after God created man, what did he do? The scripture is very clear. It says, God placed man in the garden, and he said to man, work the garden, till it. From the garden, you will be able to live. That's what God said. So yes, God wants us to work hard. And the way to be content in life is, first of all, work hard. Do it God's way. When we're doing the work that God has for us to do, it goes a long way in helping us be content. What is it somebody said? Find a job you like and you'll never work a day in your life. Find a job that makes you happy and you'll never work a day in your life. You and I need to work the work of God. Wherever we find ourselves employed, we should be doing the work of God. Living a life that proves God to others. It demonstrates that God sent his son in the world to die and save sinners. And once we're saved, we live for him. We, we work hard for the cause of Christ. When you eat of the labor of your hands, the psalmist goes on to say, you shall be happy. You know what that word happy is? Same word as that word blessed. Okay? You shall be blessed. You shall be happy. Again, we see here that God wants his children to experience, experience good things. It doesn't mean that everything we want in life will be ours. It doesn't mean that. David knew what it meant to be in need. David knew that, I mean, some people will preach and say that if you're going to be content, you'll always be at peace. Do you think David was always at peace? I think it might be just the opposite. David was seldom at peace. He was always in the battle, whether it was fighting against the Philistines or another national enemy of Israel or was trying to bring peace in his family. But he knew what it meant to be content. He knew what it meant to be in a right relationship with God. And that's the key. Paul says it this way over in the book of Philippians. He says, in whatever state I am, and maybe this is a little more relevant than the first time I heard somebody say it, in whatever state I am, even if it's New York, I have learned to be what? Content. Now, we used to say that as a joke, right? You live in a, a state that's not so friendly to certain things. Uh, I, whatever state I'm in, I can be content. No. If God places you in New York... You need to be content here. You need to say, okay, I might not like all the things that are going on in our state, but that's okay. This is where God has me at the moment, and I'm going to be content. I'm going to serve him. How does my contentment come? When I'm faithful to him, I'm living for him, I'm putting him first. And you can do that in any state. You can do that in any country. It doesn't matter where you live. I've learned to be content. I have learned to be happy where God has placed me. And then David goes on to say, it shall be well with you, okay? When you eat of the labor of your hands, you shall be happy. It will be well with you. When God is looking out for you and for me, we're going to have the best that is available for us. This word well, it means good, it means well-pleasing, it means fruitful, it means morally correct, it means proper or convenient. If this psalm were written today, you know how David might say it? He, he, he might say, God's got your back. No matter what's going on in your life, God's got your back. If you work hard and honor the Lord in the things you do, you'll be happy and always remember God's got your back. You don't have to worry about what's going to happen. God's got you. If you're in God's hands, there's no better place to be than trusting God for what he will do. He goes on and he talks about your wife will be like a fruitful vine um, in keeping with my alliteration. Copious, fruitful if you will. In the Old Testament times, if a wife was able to give you several 
can we call it a full quiver of children? You say, Pastor, what, how many is a full quiver? Well, that's between you and God. I don't know what your full quiver is, okay? Uh, for us, it was three. And we, had to be good. we had to make sure that our aim was good if we only had three in our quiver, right? But anyway, you have a fruitful vine. God will give you the children he has ordained for you to have. Okay? If you have lots of children, you're considered a wealthy man. The more children you have, the more people are going to work in your field, and you don't have to pay them for it. <laughs> you might be able to give them an allowance, but, but listen, they're your children. You put them in the field. That was the mentality in those days. Okay? Your, your field will grow. When you're taking good care of your field, it's going to grow. It's going to produce. It's not going to be choked out by the weeds because your children are going to be taking care of your fields for you. You will be fruitful. Your children shall be like olive plants. The, the, the C word here is considerable. You're going to have a considerably large family. There's going to be lots of them. An olive plant was a precious commodity in those days. It bore fruit that could be eaten or could be sold. You would have a lot of fruit. I told somebody one time, and I've cut down some of the field out there, but um, I've told people before, you know, on a, on a stalk of corn, you know how many ears grow on a stalk of corn? Usually one. One ear of corn per stalk. Somebody said, no, no, you get more than one ear. So yesterday we were out here, or maybe it was Friday, and I was walking the field just to see how much space, where the train can go, and all that kind of stuff. And I looked. Most of those stalks of corn, you know what? Have one ear. That's why they plant so many of them and plant them so close together. Because one stalk produces one ear, for the most part. Fruitful. There's a lot of corn out in that field. Okay? And they're going to use it well, I am sure. But you see... The psalmist wants us to understand that as children of God, we need to be fruitful and we need to let our fruit go all over the place. He's talking about olive plants here in the text. Olive plants were used for so much in those days. You know, we think of olives and we think that we go to the store and we buy a jar and they got to make sure they're green because those are the only ones that are good. Okay, you buy a jar of green olives and you take it home. Okay, and you think, okay, this olive, we're going to eat the olive, right? I love green olives. And so we eat them. But you know what? In those days, it wasn't just about eating olives. You know what else? How many of you cook with olive oil? That's kind of a new thing for us. I don't know. We probably, we discovered it, not discovered it, but we learned about olive oil in South Africa. Maybe it's because we were poor growing up and couldn't afford to buy olive oil or something. I don't know. But when we get to South Africa, everybody cooks with olive oil. Okay? It's, it's more prevalent there. And so we started buying olive oil. We come back to America and we start buying olive oil. Okay? Uh, and, and, and for me, it's, you don't buy this olive oil mixed with canola oil. That's, that doesn't even taste good. It doesn't even smell good when you're, when you're cooking with it. Olive oil all the way. I have adopted the philosophy that olive oil is olive oil, so I don't look for the most expensive kind of olive oil on the shelf. I just look for olive oil, and I buy it. But you know what? You eat olives, you cook with olive oil, but you know what? Olives were so prevalent in those days, you know what they did? They used it as a fuel to fill their lanterns and to fill their, their when they would light a, a lantern in the house, it was probably filled with olive oil. So it's a very multi-purpose plant. This idea of your children being like olives all over the place. They were prevalent. You could have them. You could eat with them. You could cook with them. I don't, they didn't have gear working kind of things back in those days, so you didn't have to oil the door with them, but you could. Okay? You can use olive oil for a, a great majority of things in life. And so the, the psalmist wants us to realize that your children will be like olive plants all around your play, all around your table, not just one plant, but several of them encircling your table. In this way, a man who fears the Lord is blessed. Remember what Solomon wrote after his father wrote these words? Solomon wrote this, fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wow. Fearing the Lord. We're talking about the fear of the Lord, right? 
fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you and I fear the Lord, we can expect contentment. We can expect uh, f- to be copious or fruitful. We can, see, we can understand that the Lord is going to give us considerable blessings all around us. He wraps up this psalm in verses 5 and 6 talking about realizing the blessing of Jerusalem. Realizing the blessing of Jerusalem. And it was every Israelite's desire for Jerusalem to be blessed and to prosper. Okay? Most Israelites did their very best at least once a year, if not three times a year, to travel to Jerusalem. Because that's where the feasts, if you're really going to celebrate the feast, you celebrated it in Jerusalem. So they wanted Jerusalem to be blessed. They wanted Jerusalem to prosper. And David is saying here that each father is leading his house in the fear of the Lord. He can trust God to bless his household as he's outlined in the pages of Scripture. And if the father is setting the right example, then those in his household will be learning, to ha- learning how to fear the Lord as well. Fearing the Lord meant that we were looking for God to keep his promises, that we're looking for God to do what God says he will do because he is our covenant-keeping God. He is Yahweh. He is the one who loves us and wants what is best for us. And for every Jewish person, what was best for them was for Jerusalem to prosper, for Jerusalem to do well. Because when Jerusalem did well, the country did well. The nation did well. The people of the nation did well. And when we are raising our children, and I'm not by any ways, in any stretch of the way, going to try to make a combination or a correlation between Jerusalem and, and, and America or anything like that. But I will tell you this. And by the way, just a little pet peeve of mine. It's First Chronicles 12, 29 things. It says, my people will um, call me by name. And you know that verse that everybody likes to say it's about America? <laughs> it's not. Okay? If my people will confess and, and humble themselves and seek my ways, it, it, that's not talking about America. We can never claim that verse for America. But I will tell you this. If American Christians are humbling themselves before God and seeking God's face and, and desiring to serve him... He will bless them individually. And as they are blessed individually, the blessing will be seen and felt throughout the nation as we represent our God and the world he has placed us. So we realize the blessing of God's hand on our lives. And we, when, when somebody says, why is life, why are you so content? Why are you living life like nothing's wrong? Because huh, I'm trusting God. Because I believe God is at work in my life and that God is trying to use me to, to, to help others know who God is. You see, we need to realize that God is at work. If the families of Jerusalem, back to the text, if the families of Jerusalem are being blessed, what's going to happen in Jerusalem? Jerusalem will be blessed. It's kind of like a revival. People ask a lot of times, Pastor, do you ever think there's going to be another revival in America? I don't know, that's God's business, okay? But what I do know is that each one of us, if, as God's children, if we're living the way God wants us to live, we're going to impact our sphere of influence. And there might just be a revival in our sphere of influence if we're living the way God wants us to live. And if everybody's doing that, then guess what might happen? There's going to be a revival in everybody's sphere of influence to some degree or another. And we might see that spread across our country, That's God's plan, not mine. I don't know what God has in store for us. Maybe he comes back today. Wouldn't that be great? But if he doesn't, may we commit to one another, may we commit to him to live as individuals in a way that is pleasing to him. If one person is getting it right with the Lord and then his or her family gets it right with the Lord, that can influence another person to get it right with the Lord and their family to get it right with the Lord. And it can spread and go on and on and on and on. You know what else David has here in mind? I think he has the idea of the Messiah here. Every Israelite that knew, knew that when Messiah came, it would be good for Israel. She would be blessed and she would prosper like no other time in history. 
He talks about the idea of children's children being a blessing. It's the blessing of your offspring. Can I tell you this? We've reached the age um, in our lives when we have grandchildren. Josh asked us earlier in the week, hey, we're going to the, uh, Katie's got a conference she's going to be at. Um, we're, I'm going to take the kids to the zoo on Saturday. You want to go? Any opportunity to spend time with the grandkids, what do you do? Yes, I, yeah, we'll go. Doesn't matter if you've got something else planned or going on. Yes, of course. We're going to celebrate Josiah's birthday on Thursday, Thursday night for supper. You want to come? Yeah, we'll come. What can we make? What can we bring? You love spending time with your grandkids, right? Even if it's in Jer- the Jersey Shore. Okay, wherever you can go to spend time with your grandkids. I mean, my mom was always telling me, you know, you took my grandkids to Africa. You know what? She got in an airplane and flew to Africa to spend time with her grandkids. She would have never gotten on a plane to come see us. <laughs> but to see the grandkids, you better believe it. Her mom and dad, Barb's mom and dad, same thing. You fly, I mean, can I tell you that if a trip to South Africa is not a short trip? It doesn't matter where you, where you board the plane, it's going to take you at least a full day to fly from wherever you start to South Africa. That doesn't include layovers. Okay, layovers were often 12 to 14 hours. So that's half a day there. Okay, and it, you, could be, you could be laying over in a couple of different airports. Okay, so you're talking anywhere from one to three day trip to get there. And if you've never done that before in your life and you're 70 years old and you get on an airplane, you're like, oh no, what's going to happen to me next? Okay, but why do they do it? Because they wanted to see grandkids. I'm thankful that ours are 10 minutes away, not three days away. Okay. But when you get to see your children's children, it brings joy to your heart. It, it just, no matter what's going on in the day, it doesn't really matter. Because, hey, I saw whichever one it was, and it just, you know, smile on your face. Joy in your heart. Yes. Woo! Grandchildren. Your children's children. It's the blessing of your offspring. It's seeing your children produce their own family. Barb's mom had a pillow that she used to put on the couch. It said, if I knew grandkids were so much fun, I would have had them first. Not only are grandkids a joy, um, but they're a blessing in our lives. The psalmist says, children are a heritage or a blessing from the Lord. And so we're thankful that our children have the opportunity to know the Lord as their Savior and live for Him. What an interesting worship psalm. I don't want want us to forget that this is a worship psalm. Okay? What is the psalmist doing here? He's tying all these themes together. We see the idea of worshiping. It has some amazing themes. The blessing of the Lord is part of worship. The fear of the Lord is part of worship. A faithful family is part of worship. Seeing our children produce children who go on to know and love the Lord is part of worship. God is the one we worship. Make no mistake about it. But look at all that it includes. It runs from personal happiness to a commitment to following the word, to bringing the family up to do the same. It is so important that we understand that worship is personal, it's generational, but it's always directed to who? The one true God. When we thank God and we give him glory for what he's doing in our lives, that is worship. Worship is only an act that is directed to God and him alone. No wonder they were singing psalms of worship like this as they went to corporately worship the one true God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you so much for the reminder of the importance of worship. Father, we've gathered here this morning to do just that, to worship you. All that we have done this morning, whether it's singing songs or reading scripture or opening up your word and studying it together, it's all an act of worship a declaration of our love and our gratitude and how 
wonderful you are. And Father, we ask and pray and hope that our worship has been acceptable in your sight today, like it was in the old days, uh, a sweet-smelling savor, a sacrifice worthy and honorable to you. Thank you, God, for who you are and for loving us, for the privilege that we have of loving you in return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.